Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. If you climbed up that rickety ladder, there were exactly 43 rungs. Kitty and I had counted them enough to know. You ended up on a beam that was 70 feet above the straw-littered barn floor. And then if you edged out along the beam about 12 feet, your knees jittering, your ankle joints creaking, your mouth dry and tasting like a used fuse, you stood over the haymow. And then you could jump off the beam and fall 70 feet straight down with a horrible, hilarious dying swoop into a huge soft bed of lush hay. It has a sweet smell, hay does. And you'd come to rest in that smell of reborn summer with your stomach left behind you way up there in the middle of the air. And you'd feel, well, like Lazarus must have felt. You had taken the fall and lived to tell the tale. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, your co-host for this episode. And I'm here with a review of The Last Rung on the Ladder, my second-to-last review from Stephen King's Night Shift Collection. Though it will be a short review of this very short story, and as the story is only 12 pages long, I'm going to just institute a general spoiler warning. As with most of the Night Shift short stories, there's really no way to discuss them without taking the end into account. So with that said, let's get into it. The Last Rung on the Ladder is one of the four short stories first printed in Night Shift. That it hadn't been published previously in Cavalier or one of King's usual outlets isn't a huge shock, because this isn't a horror story. There's no monsters, no ghouls, no demons, and the only ghosts are the ghosts of memories and dead loved ones that we all live with in everyday life. The Last Rung on the Ladder is a first-person story, told by a man who we know only as Larry. Quickly, we find out Larry's a corporate lawyer, one of the best, and his career has kept him moving from place to place. His age isn't given, but he's likely 30-ish. We do know he's been divorced for several years and has moved around a lot, and this is told to us in a first-page data dump, King being very efficient at bringing us up to speed. But quickly, Larry focuses in on a single event in his life, when he was 10 years old, and his little sister Katrina was 8. They called her Kitty back then, and they both lived on her parents' farm in Hemingford Home, Nebraska, a town that features heavily in King's next full novel, The Stand, and is just down the road from Gatlin, Nebraska, featured in Children of the Corn. On this single cold November day, the two youths had been left unsupervised, so both shirked their chores in order to play a dangerous game. Their father's barn had a loft 70 feet above ground, and the two children loved to climb the ladder to that loft and then skirt their way out along a narrow beam until they were positioned right above a stack of hay. Then they'd jump, falling seven stories down into the straw bed. With the hay there, the jump was completely safe, but the walk across the beam wasn't. Seventy feet above the hard barn floor, one misstep and the children would clearly be killed. So, of course, no parent would sanction such a treacherous activity. But when the parents left, the kids would take turns climbing the tall, rickety ladder, walking the beam, and jumping. It was an activity the kids had done many times, but this story is of the last time they played the game. Now ten, Larry was starting to be more aware of the dangers involved. As King writes, quote, The ladder had always held us before, we thought it would always hold us again, which is a philosophy that gets men and nations in trouble time after time. End quote. 
On this day, Larry was filled with nervousness watching his sister walk across the beam, and even more as he felt the old rickety ladder start to loosen on his last climb. The rusty nails were finally starting to give way. Before he could tell his sister it was unsafe, she'd already begun her climb, and when she neared the top, the ladder finally broke. Both sides peeled away and left Kitty dangling 60 feet above the hard floor. Larry races and he moves as much of the hay as he can beneath her. And finally, as the rung to which Kitty clung started to give way, he let her hold still so she fell straight down. The fall wasn't safe. There wasn't enough hay for that. But Kitty escaped with only a broken ankle and not a shattered skull. Larry got spanked and he never climbed up to the loft again, even on the new safe ladder his father installed. That portion of the tale, about 75% of the story, is exceedingly well told. King is vivid in his description of the barn, the loft, the pile of hay, and that rickety, old, nearly fatal ladder. I sat reading this on the ground floor of a building, but the thought of a ladder going 70 feet up, and then having to walk along a truss at that height, I nearly felt dizzy. Now, I've read this story before as an adolescent, and I thought nothing about climbing 70 feet. I understood it intellectually to be dangerous, but it didn't leave an impact on me. Now, as an adult, the thought of seeing anyone do that, let alone an eight-year-old girl, scared me more than anything else King wrote in the Night Shift collection. King's use of language is exacting, and it's there to drive home the feeling of acrophobia even in somebody sitting down, and it works. More than just fear, through language, King shows us Larry is not only remembering, but lionizing his sister. He writes, quote, She was a beautiful child and a beautiful woman. Even at eight, the year of the incident in the barn, you could see that her corn silk hair was never going to darken, and those eyes would always be a dark Scandinavian blue. A look in those eyes, and a man would be gone. End quote. That tone continues throughout the entire barn story. As Kitty was about to make her jump, King wrote, quote, She stood, poising on the toes of her old low-topped kids, hands out in front of her, and then she swanned. Talk about things you can't forget, things you can't describe. Well, I can describe it, in a way, but not in a way that'll make you understand how beautiful that was, how perfect, one of the few things in my life that seem utterly real, utterly true. No, I can't tell you like that. I don't have the skill with either my pen or my tongue. For a moment, she seemed to hang in the air, as if borne up by one of those mysterious updrafts that only existed in the third loft, a bright swallow with golden plumage, such as Nebraska had never seen since. She was Kitty, my sister. Her arms swept behind her and her back arched, and how I loved her for that beat of time. End quote. The timing of the story is vague, but it seems to take place in the mid-1970s. It is set in Nebraska, the setting King used for Children of the Corn and The Stand. Both stories started during his short time living not in Maine, but in Boulder, Colorado. And that timing would also correlate with what I've noted in previous reviews as King's remarkable leap in his writing technique between the publication of Carrie and The Stand. Despite this story being told in first person, as I've noted an overused stylistic choice in Night Shift, it's still one of the best written stories in this book. More than just writing in the first person, King is again going to his comfort zone of having an adult recall in retrospect events that happened when they were a child in the 1950s. Well, I assume it was the 1950s. King's pretty vague on dates in this, but he does mention Eisenhower was still president, so it could have been 60 or 61, but come on. It's always the 1950s in King's stories. 
We saw it in Sometimes They Come Back. King will do it again in The Body and in It and many more. But here, it doesn't feel like a tired routine. First, because King was still a new author who hadn't had time to beat that drum so often, but also because the timing of the story is actually largely irrelevant. This is an adult telling a story about when he was a child living on a farm, and the events that took place in that barn could have happened anytime from the 1920s through today. The timeless nature of the story helps give a nostalgic tint to the tale. It's told in retrospect, and it's important that no matter if you grew up on a farm or in the city, if you had a younger sister or an older brother or even just a good friend, you can think back to your own childhood and empathize with Larry's wistful memories, memories made all the more poignant in context. The story starts on an ominous tone. Something's not right with Katrina. King writes, quote, I got Katrina's letter yesterday, less than a week after my father and I got back from Los Angeles. It was addressed to Wilmington, Delaware, and I'd moved twice since then. People move around so much now, and it's funny how those crossed-off addresses and change-of-address stickers can look like accusations. Her letter was rumpled and smudged, one of the corners dog-eared from handling. I read what was in it, and the next thing I knew... I was standing in the living room with the phone in my hand, getting ready to call Dad. I put the phone down with something like horror. He was an old man, and he'd had two heart attacks. Was I going to call him and tell him about Katrina's letter so soon after we'd been in L.A.? To do that might have very well have killed him. End quote. Something is wrong, though we don't know what. Though, honestly, it's not much of a mystery. There are only so many things that could have happened, right? And this is where the spoiler alert comes in. Katrina is dead. She killed herself by making one last giant leap, this time off the top of a Los Angeles skyscraper. It made the newspapers, the headline reading, quote, Call Girl Swan Dives to Her Death, end quote. The headline itself calling back to her technique diving into the hay from the passage I read earlier. I previously said Larry was lionizing his sister. Actually, he was eulogizing her. And of course, it's a shock when we discover that Bright, young, attractive Kitty became Katrina, the suicidal call girl. She had a string of bad relationships, been married and divorced twice, but for Larry, none of that matters. What matters is that he wasn't there for her. Over the years, she'd wrote him long letters about how tragic her life became, and he would respond talking about his law school career. Kitty wasn't the only one who changed. Larry went from that playful 10-year-old boy to a workaholic, and his career eclipsed everything else. Eventually, even sending cards to his sister for Christmas or her birthday was a task Larry delegated to his wife. Once his marriage broke up, Larry simply forgot to send cards to his sister and even forgot to send letters giving her his new address. No cause of Larry's divorce is given, but it seems evident Larry prioritized his career above his marriage, above his sister, above all else. And that proved to be something Larry would have to learn to live with. Two weeks before her suicide, Katrina sent Larry that one last letter, and it read, quote, Dear Larry, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and what I've decided is that it would have been better for me if that last rung had broken before you could put the hay down. Your kitty. End quote. An obvious cry for help. Had Larry gotten it, he might have been able to reach out to her, might have saved her life. But the letter didn't get to him in time. His failure to give Katrina his new address had the letter bounce between Larry's old residences until it finally got to his new home, days after he and his father attended Katrina's funeral. And while the barn story is timeless, 
This aspect of the last rung on the ladder smacks of America's attitude towards work-life balance that seemed to really become a topic of discussion in the mid-70s and continues on to this day. This is King's short story version of Harry Chapin's song Cats in the Cradle, a story about a man who devoted his life to his work before realizing the personal relationships he left in his wake. And this is the emotional thrust of the story that really hits home. It becomes very personal for me. As you can imagine, I'm a bit of a workaholic. I run five podcasts, some of which put out two or even three shows a week, and I come from a family of workaholics. Growing up, I thought Cats in the Cradle was a song about my relationship with my father. And in retrospect, maybe it was. I also have a sister with whom I was very close. She was older, but growing up, we both spent hours on the phone catching up on each other's lives. I even lived with her for a summer during college, and she helped tutor me in some classes. But time has passed, and we don't talk like we used to. Her job and my job make it that our communication is a text message here, an email there. I read about Larry and Katrina, and I see myself and my sister. Though technology has made the idea of a mailing address outdated, without texts and email, I can't say that I would remember to send a card, send a change of address. I said that the heights didn't stick with me when I read this as a child. Neither did these family relationships. I read this at the age of 12 or 13, and I was wondering where the monsters were. I thought there would be something up in that loft that caused the ladder to break, some other Cthulhu-type monster. But no, the monster here is Larry, adult Larry, choosing his career over everything else. As a kid, this rolled off me. As a 40-year-old man, this hit home. I mean, this is the true heart of the story. As exciting as King makes the suspense of Katrina hanging from that barn ladder, it's painful to see that at age 10, Larry's only care was making sure he'd be there for his sister if she fell. In the aftermath of a barn incident, there's a touching scene where Kitty makes it very clear. She had no clue he was moving hay. She just knew as long as he was there, he'd take care of her. She'd be okay. But without her brother, her life fell to ruin, and when he didn't reply to her letter, she took her life. And how I winced when King allows us to see that one sentence Kitty wrote in her letter. It's a shanking, and perhaps an unfair one. Is it Larry's lot in life to be his sister's keeper? I guess that's for him to decide, as he must now live with that letter. And as it's written here, it's something he has to live with alone. His professional life robbed him of his wife, of his sister, and of his close friends. In certain ways, I feel that King is writing a story here that every author writes. As a English creative writing major in college, I also wrote my own suicide story. It wasn't about me, but a story about a male college student who decided to take his own life. And apparently the similarities were close enough that I was called into the school medical office just to make sure I was okay. And obviously I was. But I feel like this kind of introspection, this dealing with death, specifically suicide, is a topic that all writers must brush upon. But King, bringing to bear the skill he has, having written three novels and 20-some-odd short stories just in publication, brings a heart to this story, a human tale of pain, and shows him as a writer not only going through an exercise, but stretching his limits. Yeah, the suspense scene in the loft could be a writing exercise for scene setting, but the story as a whole shows a writer who can really convey personal drama and not just scares and suspense. And more, 
the entire story's writing style is befitting the context. It's not just his language, but his whole style conveys the mood of the piece. I mentioned the opening data dump, which comes across almost as a stream of consciousness, first person telling of Larry's life. But in reading and rereading the story, something becomes clear and it's so damn subtle. We're not being told a story by Larry. We're reading something written by Larry. You could miss it, but at one point he does mention his pen in the same sentence he mentions his tongue, but Larry is writing us a letter. And given that this is a story precipitated by Larry receiving a letter, a letter he never responded to, and now it's late at night, Larry's unable to sleep and racked with guilt, he's finally, finally writing the letter he should have written weeks, months, or even years earlier. In Katrina's life, Larry couldn't be bothered to write her back. Now that she's dead, he's sitting down to atone, to write the letter, and maybe to find happiness remembering himself when he was younger and a special day he spent with his sister. This is a story exceedingly simple in concept, but extraordinarily deep in emotion and in language and style. In Nietzsche's introduction, written by John D. MacDonald, he calls this story, quote, one of the most resonant and affecting stories in this book, end quote. I took that as a challenge when I started reading Night Shift. I noted that down. But he's right. The only other tale collected in this book that compares at this level of human drama is The Woman in the Room. And as published in the book, this story comes first. So for many readers, this may be their warm-up. Getting to read a human drama that does have a bit of suspense in the hayloft before they move on to that final story of euthanasia. It's a canny ordering of stories to prepare readers for that tear-jerking end. But in the pages of the Night Shift Collection, tucked between The Last Rung on the Ladder and The Woman in the Room, is one final short story for me to review, The Man Who Loved Flowers. That will be my review for next week, finishing my reviews of the Night Shift short stories, while the other podcast I co-host, NowPlayingPodcast.com, finishes their reviews of the Stephen King Night Shift movie adaptations with Children of the Corn Genesis. I invite you to check out all our Stephen King movie reviews at NowPlayingPodcast.com and then hit the archives at BooksAndNotches.com for the other 18 Night Shift reviews as well as reviews of King's early novels. So I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.